Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this July 4th week, we are revisiting a really great conversation I had with Ron Swanson himself, Nick Offerman. Nick has actually been on this podcast twice, but today we are listening back to the first episode we taped together back in May of 2020, when the pandemic was still very fresh and he had just reprised his role as the director of the Pawnee Indiana Parks and Recreation Department for an elaborate reunion special of that iconic NBC show. He had also just delivered a deeply moving performance in one of my favorite drama series of that year, Devs, which we talked about at length as well. Now, Nick is once again in the Emmy hunt for another emotional role in what has to be one of the best standalone episodes of television ever on HBO's The Last of Us. Basically, I always love Nick on screen, and I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation on this holiday week. Here's me with Nick Offerman. Well, I, I really want to talk about Devs, uh, which I have to say is is one of my favorite shows that's come out during this time. And it's the thing that I recommend to, to everyone who's like, you know, what should I be watching right now? But before Thank we you. do that, um, I do want to uh, ask a couple of questions about the, the Parks and Rec reunion, which was so much fun. And, um, you know, it was just a little bit ago when we're talking now. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, the kind of the joke in the show is that Ron Swanson is like perfectly suited to this because he's been social distancing since he was four years old. But but how how are you coping with with this time uh, better or worse than than Ron, would you say? Uh, I guess probably not as good as Ron, because uh, I am a social animal mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, I, I don't have a cabin that's accessible, you know? Yeah. If I if I had a cabin I could go to where I could like hunt and dress deer and like you know be packing away meat for the future and and he's drying out uh, he's making jerky and whatnot um, th that's what that's the only thing that's driving me crazy like the the upside to this for those of us that have the good fortune to simply be inconvenienced, you know, mm -hmm. or, or I'm not a frontline first responder. I don't work in a hospital. I don't work in a grocery store. I, you know, my job is to stay home and, and try to figure out where we can donate money or like help the people that still have to run the world. Uh, so the, the main problem, you know, the, the upside of it is we get to enjoy these beautiful homes or whatever situation, whatever domestic nest we've created, we, we never have the the time to slow down and say, you know what, let's just stay home for a couple of weeks and like mm -hmm. ex explore what we have in our pantry and so forth. And so that, you know, that is a, is a, is a nice silver lining to this crazy, strange and, and tragic time that we're living through. Um, the problem is for me, I just like, I just need to be productive. 
Yeah. Uh, I love getting good work done, mm-hmm. whether, and, and luckily I can be acting, I can be writing, I can be working in my wood shop, um, or I can be like touring and entertaining people. Uh, one way or another, I need to be making something. Mm-hmm. And uh, I am going to my wood shop, which is uh, across Los Angeles. Um, so it's not particularly convenient. And it feels, um, since, since I don't, it's not essential that I go there and make things. Mm-hmm. It feels a little bit like an ass wipe, you know, if, if I... If I go there every day because I'm needy, yeah. Um, is that so, where is, is that where you shot the uh, the scenes from for for Parks and Rec? Was in the wood it, shop. It is, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, I mean, my wood shop over the years always. Uh, Ron Swanson's wood shop was shot at my oh, yeah. wood shop <laughs> with some set dressing. Yeah, you were kind of you were you were well set up to do that because you had access to the wood shop and you had. Uh, you were the only person who got to appear with another uh, human in in frame, I believe. That's right. With, with your it, wife as as Tammy too. That was very gratifying, and it's it's always fun. There's always on social media, even now, uh, there's always new audience members who say they freak out and say, <laughs> "Oh my God, why are those two people together?" And then yeah. they discover that we're married, and it blows their minds. Yeah, that was pretty great. Um, that scene. But how how did the whole thing kind of work? Because were you actually able to act off of everyone, or are you kind of shooting your stuff a lot of it on your own, or what was, what uh, was how did it actually function? It was by and large, when you think about it, uh, and and I'm fascinated by the way we we uh, are fans of American Idol among other shows, mm-hmm. and we've been watching the live episodes they're doing, and also the incredible live episodes that Saturday Night Live has been yeah. doing. Yeah. Um, and we're fascinated with the um, the the strategy, the logistics of it, because Megan and I both participate in different musical endeavors, mm-hmm. and so we're aware that you can't do you can't have the four Rolling Stones on a Zoom call and play a song together because of the delay. Yeah, it's, it's impossible that's to play I, together. That's what I was thinking when they did that for the uh, for the um, that benefit. Exactly. So, so I believe, and I'm and I'm talking, you know, slightly out my ass, but I believe anything you see like that mm-hmm. has been shot and produced together. Yeah. So, uh, like like American Idol, for example, they make it. They do an incredible job of making it feel live and like here's the judges and here, you know mm-hmm. here's this contestant in Shreveport, and it's like nah, they had to shoot this and like yeah. somebody had to knit this all together. So for Parks and Rec, uh, Morgan Sackett was always our, like Mike Sackett, or sorry, Mike Schurz, the main creator, mm-hmm. uh, the main brain and heart of the show. Morgan Sackett, it, like if Mike built the beautiful yacht, Morgan Sackett, uh, no, I'll, I'll, let me let me switch that metaphor. <laughs> Morgan Sackett builds and supplies uh, the yacht so that Mike can freely drive it mm-hmm. as creatively as possible. So Morgan Sackett is this incredible producer and director who uh, kind of the unsung hero of not only Parks and Rec, but The Good Place and Veep. Mm-hmm. Um, he's incredible. And and this was his brainchild was like if the strategy of getting all those cast members camera packages and talking them through setting up their shots yeah. through, through like Zoom calls and FaceTime. So, like in my wood shop, for example, Megan and I set up the shots, but we had so we're shooting on an iPhone, but then mm-hmm. we had 
Morgan and Dean Sa- uh, Dean Holland and Mike Schur on Zoom. So mm-hmm. they're, and I'm actually showing them the shot with like my yeah. laptop. So, so we can kind of direct it from afar. Yeah, we're all making sure that, that it's going to work. And then there's, I mean, there may, uh, I don't know if there would be a way to actually achieve it, but uh, there, to my knowledge, it was it would be impossible to do all the scenes together. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could arguably have the actor, you know, I could have Amy on a FaceTime call yeah. or something, but that would require yet another channel of communication um, just to read the lines. Yeah. So you're basically just doing your lines in isolation and they're stitching it all together afterwards. Yes. Yeah. Which, yeah. which when you go back and look at it is pretty goddamn amazing. Yeah. Like it, you wouldn't it, know from watching it at all. No, um, I, it's one of the, it's one of the many examples of like, I'm glad I always liken myself. If this is an army, I'm, I'm a guy with a shovel and yeah. I love all the, all these specialists and, and general Mike Schur. And his incredible lieutenants, at some point, tell me what to shovel and where. Mm. And the hilarious thing is, then the audience says, God, that guy with the shovel was amazing. (laughs) I say, well, all I did was dig. Like, somebody had to figure everything else out. Hello, Leslie. I see you are contacting me again. This is the system, Ron. 7 p.m. phone tree. I call someone and then they call someone else and we keep doing it until everyone has been reached. This is the system. You got a better system? Yes, we talk far less than that. Or we just send each other a photo of ourselves holding up today's newspaper to prove we're okay. It's impossible to get everyone on the phone at the same time, you know? And talking is important, Ron. We have to look out for our mental and emotional health. This is the only mental health I need. What are you doing? Are you in your cabin? I am. I come up here to hunt meat so I don't have to go to the grocery store. I've built up about a 12-year supply of venison jerky. I can ship you some. You probably have to get your incisor teeth sharpened. Ew, no. When you travel, are you practicing social distancing? I've been practicing social distancing since I was four years old. I imagine the hardest sequence to pull off then was the song at the end, the uh, the little Sebastian song. Um, yeah. Was that, so you were all, again, doing that, all of your own parts separately? Yeah, totally. Um, and, and listening to, you know, we're all singing along to mm-hmm. a track. Yeah. Um, and and so that allows it to match up. But yeah, I mean, uh, it's once again, I, I had uh, the opportunity to just be so grateful to be part of the, this team of collaborators. Yeah, I, I thought I saw I maybe saw you uh, tearing up a little bit during the during the song. Is that was that emotional well, for you to to do that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I tour as a humorist, uh, among other jobs that I do. And Almost right away, I, I I never thought I would uh, turn out to be a comedian, as it were. I'm mm-hmm. a theater theater actor yeah. by training, but uh, early on in Parks and Rec, probably a few years in, so probably I think 2011 or so, maybe 12, colleges began to invite me to perform my standup, mm-hmm. and I and I said, oh, I don't do that. I'm I'm, I'm a theater actor. Yeah. But event eventually, uh, it, it pays really well, and I, and I thought. How many kids? 2,000 kids? Yeah, I would really love to talk to 2,000 mm-hmm. college students. Please tell Ohio State that, yes, I will come perform my stand-up. So I started writing specials. Um, actually, this timing is good. Literally tomorrow, I think, um, or or uh, I'm on the cusp of 
uh, releasing a website, nickofferman.co. Oh, cool. uh, and I'm, for the first time, I'm releasing my specials. Uh, oh, nice. Availability, yeah. And, I, and because of the timing, I'm donating all the proceeds to uh, food charities. That's um, great. Well, you know. I my rent is paid, so uh, I'd be kind of a, a douche if I did, didn't do that. But so so I started uh, performing as a humorist, and it was like my third or fourth college was University of Wisconsin at, at Madison, one of the greatest schools in the country. I love it. Uh, when you walk mm -hmm. off stage, you get handed a very large beer and a <laughs> bratwurst. Um, and I was doing a Q and A after the show, and somehow little Sebastian came up mm -hmm. and. Uh, and and the place went crazy. The roof blew off the, yeah. the joint. And so I sang a little bit of it, and <laughs> everybody just went wild. So I got a hold of Mike Schur, and I said, hey, uh, when I'm out here touring, I play songs on the guitar. Does anybody care if, like, for an encore or something, if I do 5,000 Candles in the Wind? And he said, no, mm -hmm. you know, go nuts. Um, and so I started doing that. And so now for years... That's part of my encore mm -hmm. is I do 5,000 Candles in the Wind, and the audience just goes bananas. They all wave their lighters or their, they light up their phones mm -hmm. and wave them. And, you know, it's uh, – so that song has remained uh, a very vital part of my life. You know, it's never gone away for me. Mm -hmm. um, and and it is so meaningful. Um, the uh, It makes me think about Chris Pratt. And that just that makes me tear up. Makes mm -hmm. me think about the, like the way Ron feels about Lil Sebastian or felt about him. Mm -hmm. That not only does that make Ron tear up, but the fact that they wrote that for me that makes me tear up. Mm -hmm. Like the whole, it's just it's just layers on layers of gratitude and emotion. And that, that's that's why it was the finale of the episode. And that's you know yeah. from the social media that I saw. That's what got the most play. Everyone said, thank you so much. Um, especially thank you so much for 5,000 candles in the yeah, wind. Like I thought the that, whole show was just so affecting. And that was, that was really just the capper at the end. And it really, I don't know. It just, it just worked so well. It's, it's one of, I mean, even, even more so than, than SNL and all these people are doing things from home. I felt like this parks and rec special is sort of the most successful example of what you can do from home in this way, which is, it's really challenging. And it's, you know, it seems like we're going to be doing it for longer than we expected. So it's, a, yeah, it's important sure. to figure these things out. I, I agree. And and once again, you know, Mike Schur, Morgan Sackett, Doug Smith, Dean Holland, um, these, these brains and the writers, uh, mm, we yeah. had like seven of our writers. They're the most clever people, you know, and, and part of their cleverness is they can walk through the airport. The, they they pick a shoveler like me, and I have to I have to take the hit. Yeah, <laughs> I, I get all the credit, but I also can't stand in line at the Shake Shack without yeah. being accosted. Well, fortunately, no one's standing in line at Shake Shack anymore. So, yes, for worry better or worse. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Devs, um, which, as I said, is just a phenomenal show, and I think you're so so wonderful in it. And it is kind of like going back to your your dramatic roots, right? Very much. I um, I started professionally in Chicago theater in the mid '90s, and I, you know, 
in the theater, you play what, whatever is on the season. And so you, you have, I guess, a more generalized toolbox mm-hmm. um, than, than a specialist like, like the, the comedy people who I'm often associated with who trained at the Upright Citizens Brigade or Second City or, you know, the Groundlings. Um, those, you know, they are trained in improvisation and sketch comedy and maybe impersonations, things like that. Mm-hmm. Whereas I, you know, I got to be ready to do Shakespeare or Sam Shepard or, you know, Martin McDonough or, you know, Carol Churchill, Sarah Rule, whatever the, whatever's on the season mm-hmm. or, or the, or the most broad like Fado farce or Joe Orton comedies, you know? And so I've always loved making people laugh, but I feel like my years in Chicago, I, uh, I, I was more known as like a villain that mm-hmm. people love to hate. That was kind of my favorite thing to do yeah. was to to play a dastardly villain, but but just ma- uh, relish in having the audience laugh, being able to make them laugh or charm them like Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, your character Forrest on, in Devs is is definitely villainous in some ways, but also very sympathetic in other ways. So what were your sort of impressions of, of this character when it, when it first came to you? Well, I mean, you know, in a nutshell, I was at my wood shop one day and I got a call that Alex Garland wanted to meet with me about a new show he was doing. And I, I welled up, uh, mm-hmm. that's, you know, um, I, I've had a wonderful run of good fortune, um, in my life, but still, getting that phone call was a, was a big surprise. You know, I, I would not have thought I was, would ever be on Alex's radar, mm-hmm. uh, mainly being such a huge fan of Ex Machina and Annihilation. And so one of the many anomalous things about the, the gorgeous, exquisite genius of Alex Garland is his commonsensical practicality. Mm-hmm. So he he exists outside of the commerce and the metabolism of show business in such a in such a gorgeous way. So, for example, uh, he, it would never occur to him to begin shooting an eight episode series without having written the whole thing. Yeah, as a, as opposed to so much of the TV business where you sell a pilot based on a cocktail napkin pitch mm-hmm. and, and then, then you have to figure something they're out like oh shit they bought it now what are, <laughs> yeah. what are we going to do with you know don draper or whoever yeah. um oh no and and you know and i said that to him you know and he just shook his head and said well doesn't that seem crazy <laughs> to like start a painting not knowing what colors you're going to end up with or like mm-hmm. you know what the end of how long the canvas yeah. is it's it almost work? like he wanted everything to be predetermined Exactly. (laughs) And so going in, we got to read all eight scripts. And I mean, so there's no, you know, I've been asked this question, like, what was it about the character? I I don't care. I would have played any goddamn part in that show. Like, Did he did he tell you what it was about you that made him want you to play the character? He did eventually. Um, He said that and uh, I, I, I don't know, you know how much I agree with him, but he said that he felt like you sort of, you sort of hit on it. Um, Forrest does some pretty despicable things, um, especially from the outset, before you know what's going on in the narrative, the morality seems 
very questionable uh, on the part of Forrest. But then as you begin to learn his motives uh, and, and sort of the justifications that he that he makes to himself and others for his actions, it, it becomes much more of a gray area where you're mm-hmm. like, ah, well, it, it makes sense. I don't know if it makes it okay, but at <laughs> yeah. least... At least I see what what's going on with him. And so he said, in order for Forrest to work, in order for the series to work, the audience really needed uh, to, to have empathy for Forrest. Mm-hmm. And he felt like, you know, because my, my I have these abnormally large uh, eye, eyeballs, that there's a lot of acreage uh, mm-hmm. below my eyebrows. He, he said that he felt like I could elicit empathy in that. Uh, he he uh, was not familiar with Parks and Recreation, I eventually learned, which is pretty yeah. satisfying. Um, <laughs> and he also did he didn't really know a lot about me. Um, he had mm-hmm. seen he had seen some of the uh, work I'm the most proud of, but like that, that nobody knows about, which is mainly movies that have premiered at Sundance mm-hmm. and then like, you know, had like a small art house release. And people, you know, the the popular culture audience just doesn't always get to those. The first time we see Forrest is when he's um, shoveling that salad into his mouth, which I think also became kind of a, a talked about moment on the show. Um, was that something that, that you came up with on the spot or where did that it, come from? It was. Uh, Alex and I, um, in the script, it was something like uh, Forrest, you know, is Forrest like hustles in with Katie to this meeting He's finishing the last bites of a Danish, I think, was Mm. in the script. And so we're blocking the scene. And I said, you know, let's talk about this Danish. Like, I'm going to be chewing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be trying. Which, which on on one hand, what what I like about what the action conveys is this guy, you know, is is, uh, unkempt. Like, he's Mm -hmm. not... Meticulous. He he didn't have a nice tidy breakfast somewhere. He's just like, hey, grab me a Danish yeah. that I'll wolf down in the hallway on my way mm-hmm. to my first meeting. And we just said, Alex said, like, oh yeah, you're right. I like that. I like the practicality of not having a cumbersome like mouthful of dough mm-hmm. for for you know whatever seventeen takes of this scene. And so we tossed it back and forth and there was a lot of stuff like this and Alex is really generous about it I mean I usually it was between the two of us we came up with it um I it was I I believe it was my idea to eat it with my hands Mm because I love I love to do that myself like when I'm uh fishing with my family and I'm like in a cabin by myself I just get a big bag of spinach and you you know (laughs) why go to the trouble of making a salad yeah shove down two handfuls there you've been, <laughs> you've been healthy and it's, it took 30 seconds coming up nick talks about how quarantine has changed his priorities and reveals the two people that make him laugh the hardest hint he's married to one of them a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Do you feel like this time of, you know, of quarantine and, and all that has has changed your priorities or the things that you want to accomplish? I know you're also, uh, you're turning 50 soon. So that's also a big uh, milestone. Does it, do you think about those sort of like what you, what you want to do next, what you want to accomplish? Um, not, I mean, I, I suppose it's brought those things into focus. I, for some reason, um, unbeknownst to me, I, I have an incredible family and I grew up with a wonderful uh, set of parents and I have three siblings that are, that are incredible, like wonderfully redoubtable citizens. My mom and dad just did a hell of a good job. You know, we're all humans. We're, we all have our flaws, but like we all are conscientious citizens. We're all doing our best to like promote good manners and neighborly love and, you mm -hmm. know, um, to, to, to create more than we destroy, to leave things nicer than we found them, uh, to, to do on, unto those uh, downstream as we would have those upstream of us do unto us, which is butchering a Wendell Berry uh, quote. <laughs> um, and so the older I get, the more, you know, uh, it, it's funny, I, I, I feel... Uh, I feel the cliche of it, even even when conversing with myself. But um, it's the simple things. The older I get, the more I love my family, the more I just want to spend time with them, mm -hmm. um, the less I want to consume anything. You know, I, I, uh, I've lost uh, any desire to ever go shopping for anything. I'm like, <laughs> do, are, are, do my shoes work? Great. Yeah. When they quit working, I'll get another pair of shoes. Like, yeah. The um and so, you know, as I grow older, uh, I do um, I, I focus on my health, my relationship with with Megan, and our lives together, and and um, and and my family. Uh, I the, the I have this disposition where, and and it's tr served me so well in this stupid, gross business. Um, <laughs> And that is, I've never been terribly ambitious. Uh, mm -hmm. I love getting to like perform good writing for people, whether it's funny or or it gives them a catharsis of one sort or another. Uh, and I got to work as an actor professionally. You know, when I when I met Megan, uh, I was about to turn thirty, and I had been working for about seven years, and. Like when I when I was merely uh, an unknown character actor, uh, Mr. Megan Mullally, and working as a carpenter and and uh, an aspiring woodworker, I thought I had made it beyond my wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. I was like, "Holy cow, this life has turned out amazingly!" And then and then I got like a series on Comedy Central called American Body Shop, and then. Um, you know, I got a handful of things that, that sort of built up and then I got 
in my mid to late 30, I think I was 38 when I got Ron Swanson. Mm-hmm. And the, so the, you know, life was like, oh, by the way, things are going <laughs> to get way more super crazy. Um, yeah. And that's that's been the story for 11 or 12 years now. And the thing is, I'm like, well, now I've definitely... Yeah, now you're really set. Yeah, I mean, I've gotten to do things beyond my wildest dreams. And so that allows me to not be ambitious. I don't call my agents and say, what are you, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> why am I not the next Batman or whatever? You, you wait for Alex Garland to call you. So that's pretty good. Well, the thing is, I, I just always have a policy of following my gut. Mm-hmm. Like if something comes my way... I, then I consider it. I try to I try to work on good writing with with people that I enjoy. Those are the two rules. Yeah. Is this good writing? Does it inspire me? Like, do I think this is uh, moving the, some conversation forward, or is it just like, or is this just like, oh, it's a it's a good gig? And I'm lucky enough. It's so incredibly lucky as an actor to be able to pick what you do. Mm-hmm. And, and when those good gigs come along, say, yeah it's just a good gig. Like I'd rather go work, build things at my shop or write a book in case Alex Garland is going to call. Yeah. Um, but with, with that in mind, I, I do want to look back at a couple of your, your earlier gigs um, to see if there's a, a story or memory that, that comes to mind um, from those experiences. Uh, and starting with what I think I found is your first TV appearance was on ER. ER was a mind blowing sort of first, like, guest star job in that was Los a big An- deal yeah I, I, had, I had only been in los angeles for i don't know six months maybe and here's the thing it was the first live episode of oh, er wow. i think it was a season that was a big deal too i remember that premiere or a season finale and uh george clooney was still on the show mm-hmm. i mean there's it was so exciting i was like i was so excited i i I don't know if anybody, I know I was the first person to ever actually light a joint <laughs> in, in Dr. Green, uh, Anthony Edwards ER and Maria Bello said, Hey man, you can't fire that thing up in here. <laughs> and, and, um, the thing was, it was, they rehearsed it like a play. So they mm-hmm. threw, they threw the elephant doors open of the sound stage. Yeah. And all day long, there were like all of these stage managers dressed as nurses and doctors because the whole thing would play out because it was live. Mm-hmm. So so somebody would walk by you and say, okay, like, open the door now. So everything was choreographed. Yeah, well, that's so much pressure for, for a young actor it, who it, hasn't it been was, on TV a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was, but it was so easy and, like, spoon-fed. There was, mm-hmm. there was no risk. Like, there was a couple yeah. of stunts in the show, and, mm-hmm. the, you know, those always have a... Uh, like, somebody fe- fell off a building or something, but... Mm-hmm. For being a theater actor, and I used to do a lot of stage combat and sword fighting, so to have like five lines and have somebody be like, "Okay, go," and you're like, yeah. "Okay, here's my lines. Okay, <laughs> I've rehearsed this thirty times. Okay, and that's it. It's over." Um, but it was so thrilling, and the best thing about it was hanging with George Clooney. They had this table set up backstage with a huge pot of soup, mm. and he said it felt very maritime, which it did. It was chilly out. <laughs> And so the, and the, there was like a breeze because the doors were open and we're standing around eating soup. And so he and I would sway back and forth singing <laughs> The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. Um, and then a crazy aside, probably five years later, I saw him at an Oscar party. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen him since. And and I, 
we never really met. Uh, like we just had soup together. Mm-hmm. And he famously always remembers everybody. Like it's oh, one really? of the things that would that makes a great politician or a mm-hmm. movie star. I run into him at an Oscar party at Brian Lord's house, and we, I, Megan and I were making a beeline for Patricia Clarkson, who we were just uh, uh, besotted with. <laughs> who could you have ended ever up working met? with later, right? On, yeah, she, on Parks and Rec. Those were my two ex-wives right there. I yeah. mean, what a lucky son of a bitch. But <laughs> we run into George Clooney, and he, and he says, like, hi to Megan, and he looks at me and points and says... Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> and I was like, so, wow. do, do I blow you now? Like, how does this work? <laughs> you, that was, I mean, I, I could not believe that recall. But yeah, uh, that, was, that was incredibly yeah. fun. Yeah. Uh, one of your, your earliest or first uh, recurring roles, I believe, was on 24. Was, is that, was, was that experience uh, similarly um, intense? Or, or how it was, that, how it that was very intense. It was really fun in a lot of ways because um it, it it's funny like i was a I, I choreographed a lot of sword fights but also a lot of like hand-to-hand combat on stage in chicago then when you get to la i immediately was told okay buddy you really you can either be a stuntman or an actor mm-hmm. but if they do like the three musketeers or pirates movies or whatever they're not they're not looking at people's resumes to see mm-hmm. who is a great sword fighter from Chicago. Like they want Orlando Bloom and with good reason. And they're like, okay, is he, maybe he's a great sword fighter or if he's not, we'll figure it out. Either we'll teach him or we'll cut around it. And so I, I always, to this day, I'm like, man, it's something I just wish I got to do more of. I, I was, I was much more athletic than I was talented at acting. <laughs> so I'm like, ah, sort of my greatest strength. Mm-hmm. I've never gotten to do that much. But working on 24 involved a bunch of cool action stuff. So that part was very satisfying. At the same time, the show had a mercenary feel that taught me that I didn't really want to work on that kind of genre. Um the one of the directors I worked with was kind of misogynist. He like he sort of took me aside. There was a part where I had to terrorize a woman mm-hmm. physically, like at a door, like kind of rough her up and scare her. Yeah. And the director like took he was an old fashioned director. He took me aside and was like, you know, why don't you uh, go ahead and and uh, be a little rough, like like really scared, Jesus. like like really be brutal to this actress. Yeah. And I was like. I was like, well, that's the first thing you are taught as a stage choreographer and stage combatant is obviously it's fucking safety first. Like mm-hmm. you're, you're throwing swords around or punches or whatever. And, and often if you're filming it, if it's on stage, you got to do it every night, eight times a week. Or if you're doing it on 24, you have to do it for 12 takes or whatever. So the most important thing is that everyone feels safe. And here this, and it's that old fashioned thing of like, hey, you know what? Just punch him. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is just stupid and old fashioned yeah. and, and misogynist. So I said, of course, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and I and I told her that mm-hmm. he told he, me that. That he wanted was, you to? And I was like, look, let's just work this out. And there's all these ways, you know, people have been doing this for, for decades. Like mm-hmm. there's many ways to convincingly 
It's called acting. <laughs> yeah. you, you can act out a scene where you're brutal to a, another person without actually having to like squeeze their arm too hard. Mm -hmm. So that that was upsetting, and you know, so there's things like that where you're like, oh wow, the, stuff like that does exist in this business. Mm -hmm. I'm always fascinated by people's experiences on Curb Your Enthusiasm, which you were fortunate enough to uh, to guest star on not too long ago. What was that? What was that experience like? Because that's such a unique. Uh, set up at that show in terms of the improv and, and how it, it is. Yeah. I mean, I love that show so much and I think it's been on, I don't, I don't know. Hasn't it been going for 20 years? Yeah. Or something? 20 years, I think. I mean, so I've, I've been crazy about it the whole time. Now, Jeff Garland, who plays uh, Larry's agent on the show named Jeff, I believe Garland. Green. Jeff Green. Thank you. And um, so in real life, uh, 25 years, no, 27 years ago, Jeff Garland's wife at the time, Marla Garland, was my first agent in Chicago. Oh, wow. Uh, and so somehow through that, I, I had like run into them a couple times. Somehow she and Jeff thought highly of me in a way that over the years I had auditioned at least four or five times for Curb. Oh, really? And the crazy thing is, uh, you go in and audition, you improvise with whoever your scene is with. Mm -hmm. So in the room, you got Larry and Jeff are always there because they're the executive producers, but you got Cheryl Hines or whoever else. Mm -hmm. And so out of nowhere, you get a call and you got to go in and improvise a scene with Larry David or, or and usually they were with Larry and because um, usually he's the one you know, being an asshole, mm -hmm. whoever the new victim is. And so I had been through these things and they were so fun and exciting. And these people were so generous. I never got the job, obviously. Yeah. But every time they would say like, you're really funny. That was really great. Like they made me feel so comfortable and never, never got it. And it was always like, eh, you know, you'd kind of see who did get it. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it was, <laughs> yeah. it, was it was never like I, I totally bit the dust. And then finally, uh, gratifyingly, I just get a call 18 years into, into this <laughs> where they're like, hey, will you come do this part? No audition. Play, yeah, play the stage manager um, for, for uh, Lin-Manuel has written uh, a the musical. Fox, Fox, musical, yeah. Yeah, starring F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> and, and, you know, and... You know, of course, I was like, oh, my God. So that, that was actually where I got to meet Lynn. Mm -hmm. um, and it was so fun. Um, it was so fun to do. It was, But it was really weird. Actually, doing a couple scenes with Larry was mm -hmm. really weird. Yeah. Because he obviously is just such a comic genius, and he's so funny, and he's so specific. Uh, his, you, you sort of realize... That he's funny despite, and, and I don't even mean this to disparage him, but he's not a very good actor. <laughs> yeah. Like, he. I don't think he would say he's a very good actor, probably. Yeah, I mean, he's he's kind of like a vaudevillian or something where he's like playing this character. Yeah. And so it's incredibly effective. Obviously, it's great. We're like, whatever he's doing, mm -hmm. don't fix it. But to suddenly be in a scene with him was like, oh, you're not, you're not a good, like, give take. Like, yeah. you haven't had acting class. It's a different kind of thing. It really is. And it was, you know, the, the, so there was a brief moment of like, oh, this is weird. Okay. 
okay, I'm, I, got, mm-hmm. I got it, I got it. And he's like, suddenly you realize that like what, what you see him doing sometimes where he has like difficulty pronouncing words and gesticulating, <laughs> it's because he's, it's all he can do to like, you know, get through the scene. And, and then you realize, oh, right, the thing to do is like bend your knees and play defense and get ready to catch Larry in mm-hmm. case he falls in one direction or the other. It was, I mean, it was just so fun. It like, it felt like you were in, in a scene with like Bugs Bunny or something where you're like, <laughs> Oh my God, this man has made me laugh so many times. Yeah. And now I'll, I just have to keep my shit together. Um, so you've, you've obviously worked with so many funny people over the years and uh, we end these interviews by asking, is there a comedian who has made you laugh the hardest, maybe someone that you've worked with on set or even someone that you've seen perform when, when you think of just who, who in your life has, has made you laugh the hardest, who, who comes to mind? Well, I am, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be greedy and, and there's two answers to this question. That's okay. Uh, the first is Chris Pratt. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I knew Chris for some years before uh, Parks and Rec started. I met him at a pool party at Justin Long's house mm-hmm. at some point. Um, and I, I, I had not seen, I think he had done Everwood and, and like the OC or something, which I had not seen. So mm-hmm. I wasn't, I hadn't met him, didn't know who he was. And I just, and got to talking to him and just thought, good God. And I said to him, I, and, and I think this, this happened to him a lot. I said, uh, if you're not a movie star yet, you are by God going to be. Like <laughs> yeah. he, he is, uh, and it, it, it hasn't really been showing up in uh, his current chapter, which is the Guardians mm-hmm. uh, and Jurassic Park sort of chapter with, with other movies thrown in, but like, which are, are, are their own thing. And certainly Guardians has really funny moments in it, mm-hmm. but like nothing touches on or perhaps allows him to shine the way that Parks and Rec did. Yeah, watching him in the, in the special, uh, the reunion really made me want to see him do more comedy because he was so funny on, on that show. He is, I mean, it's not fair. Uh, he's also... <laughs> Because he's made such a wonderful career uh, of of like before before becoming uh, an A list movie star of being like a doofus, you know, a lovable doofus. It's sort of a a persona that he honed, uh, kind of some similarly in some ways to the way Conan comes off as like I'm just a gawky nerd, mm-hmm. like I'm, I'm a harmless clown. And then when you hang with him in real life, you're like, oh, you're like a Nordic god. He's like a <laughs> Viking. I've gone bike riding with Conan. And and Chris is the same way where he's like a, a bumbling, you know, idiot. Mm-hmm. That guy, when we would work on Parks and Rec, he would come in to my trailer in the morning, you know, getting our coffee, like, before we go in to start the day. And he would, like, tell me a, a, an idea for a TV series that he had on the way into work. Mm-hmm. And and seven minutes into the description, I would say, "Hang on, have you told your agents this idea?" And there, <laughs> and there, this happened twenty four times. Yeah, every single idea was absolutely genius. Like Chris <laughs> is a, as smart as anybody I've ever met, but he cloaks it in that doofus thing. And in the same way, improvising on Parks and Rec, 
I knew, I've said this before, but like for each cast member, I sort of had a shield that I could, I, I could, for Aubrey or Amy or Adam Scott, like I, I knew where to place my shield mm-hmm. to withstand the, the, the laser blasts of their particular <laughs> brand of comedy. Yeah. Pratt would come like through the fucking sewer <laughs> up through left field and just always sneak in. Mm hmm. And and just and so that would break me so hard. Yeah. Because first was the inkling, the realization that God damn it, you got in and got me. And then I would just like <laughs> giggle with laughter. Um, but the person who makes me laugh the hardest uh, for twenty years now is my wife Megan Mullally. Mm. She is the most wickedly funny person, and and obviously look, you know. If I look at her closet full of trophies, uh, I'm not the only one who thinks this. Yeah. Um, but be, being married to her, and then especially getting to work with her in comedy, mm-hmm. it it's incredibly uh, delicious. And and like, um, I mean, it's it, it's it's like the rush of I've never uh, I've never injected drugs. Uh, but it it's it's how it's you like imagine de- that's what it feels like the description of like a narcotic rush of like oh my god like <laughs> the you've filled me with such an opiatic pleasure um and she can do it because again she knows my buttons mm-hmm. uh and, and she knows how to push them if we're in a scene together and we just make eye contact i'm done like she <laughs> she can just do something like there's a scene in parks and rec where she slaps a piece of beef jerky against her (laughs) face and and i'm i'm gone i'm just like on the floor she can with just a look or a gesture or she can even just like there's one scene where she just brushes against me (laughs) i'm a giggling sobbing mess well i'm glad that you have each other to to entertain each other from home during this time we're pretty lucky Thank you so much, Nick. This was this was really a, a treat, and um, it was uh, it was great to talk to you. And, and good luck with everything. Thank you very much, Matt. And it's a pleasure talking with you. And thanks for being gentle with me. <laughs> okay. All right. Have a good one. You too. Stay safe. You too. Bye. Bye. Maybe someday we'll saddle up again. No, I'll always miss. Horseus friend Spread your wings and fly Spread your wings and fly All right, that was me and Nick Offerman from May of 2020. I will be looking out next week to see if he lands a much-deserved Emmy nomination for his performance in episode three of The Last of Us, which you can stream now on Max. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. 
Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mb3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.